0: Luke chapter 24, 13 to 35. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? He said to them, How foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all the, uh, all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the 11 and those with them, assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning, church. What a joy it is to be with you. And a huge thank you to Phil and the rest of the session for this opportunity to preach We had set this up months ago, and so I'm just, you know, so pleased that you're in Recovering Health, Phil, and that you get to be in the pews for a change this Sunday. Uh, And to Paul and to Roger and the rest of the staff, what a wonderful ministry team you have here. Great hospitality. I'm used to working with uh, what Pope Francis calls missionary disciples, but you have musical disciples in this church. Thank you so much for leading us in praise. I do bring you greetings from St. Andrew's Hall, uh, the Presbyterian College on the West Coast. Uh, We work in partnership with the Vancouver School of Theology, uh, led by a good Presbyterian, Richard Topping. So bring greetings from all the folks on the West Coast. They do say uh, where I live that the hardest thing about preaching heaven in Vancouver is people think they're already there. Uh, But I like Toronto, and it's great to be back in this church worshiping God. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the gift of this totally unused Sabbath that is all around us and ahead of us this day. Thank you, God, for this season of Easter, for its promise that we might once again experience an expectation of revelation. Help us now to attend to your faithful presence around us and within us. We ask by your power, by your grace, by your love, that you would disempower our depravity and enliven us by your grace. We pray in your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Last time I was in this church, I was in a pew, worshiping here. Uh, My wife and I were grad students at the University of Toronto, and we lived on Charles Street West in those uh, large family housing units. Uh, We were uh, young people in love. Back then, now we're older people in love with three children and a mortgage. Uh, And uh, we loved worshipping in this space. One of our rituals that Laura and I would have in Toronto is, uh, after dinner, we would go for a power walk, as my wife would call it, all through the streets of downtown. We were in better shape back then. Uh, Toronto is such an amazing, world-class city. There's always something to see and marvel at in the streets of Toronto. Our evening walk would often take us down Bay Street, and we would pass uh, Bistro 990. I think it's still around. At the time, we would always, as kind of starving students, walk past the, uh, the front windows and see these very classy people with their beautiful French food and French wine. And my wife would uh, drop subtle uh, hints like, um, you should take me there sometime, she would say. Uh, And so I would save up my meager youth pastor funds, uh, and from time to time, uh, if I could afford it, I'd make a reservation, I'd say, uh, let's get dressed up tonight, I'll put on my suit, and you put on a dress, and we're going to go to Bistro 990. We actually only did it once, we could afford it. We went to Bistro 990 and had a lovely meal. We scanned the menu for the cheapest items we could possibly order and just kept ordering jugs of water. The waiter was not impressed. And partway through our meal, I froze. And I held the fork in midair because I heard the voice. And I leaned slowly out from where I was seated and there he was, the body to match the voice. Only two tables over was Patrick Stewart. Now, if you know Patrick Stewart, maybe you're not a Star Trek fan, but he's a great Shakespearean actor with that rich, deep cadence and tone to his voice, right? Uh, if you don't know him, you can look on YouTube, watch him reading Taylor Swift lyrics. It's fantastic. Uh, And and he was uh, out for dinner with a friend, and I was just amazed at this voice that I recognized. And and I leaned back, and I said to my wife, Laura, I love you, but if that man over there comes to our table and says, Commander Lockhart, there is trouble in engineering, I will follow him wherever he goes. (laughs) Not my best moment in marriage. Now, I am sure, I am sure that there would be a famous Hollywood voice that you would recognize if you heard it, right? And and if not, then surely a loved one, a family member, a a parent's voice, a spouse, a child, or a, a beloved friend. If you didn't see them, but you just heard their voice, you would recognize them. That's why today's... Scripture reading is confusing, and it has been for me for a long time. This is kind of Easter 2.0, right? The the resurrection stories are glorious, and last week, around the world, billions of human beings celebrated the truth that God raised Jesus from the dead for our salvation. Last week, I was preaching in... uh, Lovely little spot, Abbotsford, British Columbia. I was preaching at Calvin Presbyterian Church. As a a professor now, my greatest fear going into teaching the seminary is that I would lose touch with reality. That's right here in the local church. So Stephen Ferris, who appointed me, said, oh, well, I preach every Sunday, and Richard Topping does. You should do that too. So I hop around to different churches every Sunday, and it's amazing to see what God is doing in local churches. Last Sunday in Abbotsford, We looked at the resurrection story according to Matthew's witness. And in that story, the tomb is empty, of course, but the women who go actually encounter Jesus. They hear his voice, they recognize his voice, and they see him. I was sitting in your first pew looking over at this beautiful stained glass window that depicts that scene. Look at the risen Christ meeting the female disciples in the garden. Luke's story is a little different. The stone rolled away, the tomb empty, two angelic messengers, right? God's messengers, the malach of God, come and declare the resurrection to be true. And they run and tell others. And the male disciples are confused. They're not sure what to make of this. And just as we're trying to to process head and heart what is going on in Luke's telling of the resurrection, he doesn't even let us catch our breath. For the next scene, we're moving, we're power walking, we're on the road to Emmaus. Emmaus is a little village, it's actually more of a mid-sized administrative town according to some records in Jesus' day seven miles outside of Jerusalem. I think I've been there, but no one's really sure. I lead pilgrimage tours regularly to Israel, and I went this last January to one of the sites of Emmaus outside. See, the trick is there are three biblical sites that claim to be the real Emmaus. And it's strange, but the guy in the gift shop at each one swears that that's the authentic site. I don't understand but it's a village somewhere seven miles outside of Jerusalem. And Cleopas is on the road. Cleopas and who? It's kind of unfair. It's a trick question. We don't know the name of the other disciple. And there are some who have suggested maybe this was a little device of Luke and his community writing down these stories of the resurrection because maybe we are supposed to insert our name. Beside Cleopas's. We are on the road to Emmaus. These disciples are walking along, and a stranger comes and greets them and walks along with them. They don't recognize him, but they size him up to make sure he's safe, and traveling in larger numbers is a good idea, right? So they continue to walk along now, the three of them. And this stranger, makes inquiries as to what they are talking about. And these guys are amazed that this stranger has not been following the events that everyone's been talking about in Jerusalem during Passover. It would, it would be like being in Toronto today and being unaware there's a Maple Leafs game tonight. Like, it's just not possible, right? Okay. And, and so they, they are walking along, and, and they start describing to this stranger what has taken place with their rabbi their friend, Yeshua. They tell the story of Jesus. But this is surely a moment. I think of it as like an exegetical off-ramp. When I, as a pastor, when I lead Bible studies, I often think when I'm looking at the text, where are people in this Bible study going to check out and say, you know what, Ross, this makes no sense. I'm out. Like, thanks very much, pastor, but this doesn't make any sense. And this is surely over the years where I have seen people check out. They're like, How can these guys not recognize Jesus? Has anyone ever wondered that? Now, you know, you could make the case we're not dealing with an A-class celebrity disciple here, right? We're not dealing with a Peter or a Matthew or a Mark. I think it's fair to say Cleopas is more of a B-class celebrity disciple, right? If you were collecting Bible trading cards, uh, Cleopas wouldn't be worth that much, right? Okay. So, but he may not be the inner circle. He may not be the inner circle, but it's presumed that he is in the circle, the wider circle. This is someone, most likely, who has heard Jesus' teaching, perhaps even witnessed a miracle, should recognize his voice. But he doesn't. Why? It's a struggle. If you see Phil walking down Bloor Street outside of here, you're going to recognize them. Say, hey, pastor, how are you, right? We should recognize our faith leaders. Years ago, I was serving a congregation in Vancouver, and I got some free tickets to uh, the Canucks game. We do have a hockey team on the West Coast. I I, I know it's, don't want to talk about it. And uh, I got free tickets, not surprising, to the Canucks. (laughs) And I took my son, Jack, who's sweet as pie, I love him, he's a great little guy, and we went to the Canucks game, and we're walking out during the first intermission. And there's a rather official-looking woman there in a Vancouver Canucks golf shirt. She has, like, the McDonald's drive-through headset on and a clipboard. And she stops me, and she says, "'Excuse me, sir, but would you, during the next intermission, like to go out on the ice and play a game?' And I thought, oh, okay. And I thought, oh, I've got my son with me. No problem, he can stay with me when you go out. And I, and I struggle a little bit more. And then being a Winnipegger, being a prairie person, she said my favorite phrase, you could win free stuff, she said. I said, absolutely, I'll do it. So the next intermission, I find myself stepping out at Rogers Arena on the ice, and I have this massive inner tube, inflatable inner tube that I, I've been given, and I have to roll it down the ice... And hit a target at the other end. And the guy in the Zamboni is just like, come on, let's get this over with. i got to clean the ice. And as soon as I step out on the ice, I can still uh, actually physically remember this. I could feel my iPhone vibrating in my pocket. I could feel the ring of a telephone call. I could feel the text ring and the email update, right? And when I got off the ice, I checked it. And you know what it was. Members of my church in the arena They saw me on the jumbotron. Messages like, Pastor, why are you on the ice? (laughs) Hit the target, Pastor, you missed. You know, these kinds of things, right? You should recognize your faith leaders when you see them, but Cleopas doesn't. Why? I think there's a hint. I think there's a clue inside the Scriptures today. And I think it has to do with the way in which Cleopas was seeing the world. I've always been hard on Cleopas, and I've preached a few sermons in my early ordained life. Actually, I've preached a lot of sermons in my early ordained life that I wish I could have back. But um, the ones on Cleopas in particular, I think I was too hard on him. God corrected me on Cleopas a number of years ago when I was ministering in eastern Ontario, and I was waiting in the basement of Union Station uh, for my via train back home. It's a big, long lineup of people. You, you know the queue, how you wait there. And uh, being a prairie person, I, I talk to people. I, I talk to strangers. I know you're not supposed to in Toronto, but I, I do, I do. So I was standing there with my, my little duffel bag, and there was a rather distinguished-looking older gentleman beside me, nice suit on, uh, and I started chatting to him. And, and if you were to talk to someone you don't know, what would you talk about? The weather, right? And then hockey, Right? Those are safe subjects. So we talked about the weather as we're waiting in this lineup, and then we started talking about hockey. And now that, unlike this year, was a bad year for the Leafs. And I started to offer my advice on how the Leafs could be better. You know, if you only played this player instead of that player, and if the coach would only use this play instead of that play, and we're talking like that, and and the stranger beside me just nodded along in his kind of distinguished way, the line starts to move, We get to the front, and I say to him, well, it's been great chatting with you, and all the best on your trip to Ottawa. And I don't know if you hear this a lot from people, but you look a lot like Gordie Howe. Guy puts down his bag, he puts his hands on his hips, and he says, I am Gordie Howe. (laughs) How foolish, how slow of heart. I had been talking to Mr. Hockey for a half an hour, giving him advice on hockey. <laughs> so I'm not as hard on Cleopas these days. He walks along with Jesus and is telling Jesus the story of Holy Week and about the passion of Christ. And Jesus opens up the scriptures as they walk along. And as they get to Emmaus, it is as if Jesus is about to go on. The sun is setting, a hospitality code kicks in here. They they should invite him in, and and they do, but in that time, you shouldn't readily accept. You kind of do this little dance like, no, thank you. Uh, The only thing that I can think of that lingers in our culture like that is think about the last time you went out for lunch with a friend. What happened when the bill arrived? Let me get this. No, 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 let me get this. And you go back and forth until finally some person says, oh, thank you very much, right? Or you rip the receipt in two, exactly. So this is going on, and finally Jesus is invited in, and then something really strange happens. Something really strange. And it has to do with Jesus and where he sits. Jesus does not sit in the place of the guest, but of the host. Think about when you go to someone's house for a dinner party. When it's time to sit at the table, you don't just sit down. What do you say? Where would you like me to sit, right? Because what would be like the kind of most embarrassing thing if you sit in the place of the host or hostess, right? But Jesus takes the place of the host. He blesses the bread, and he breaks it. And in that moment, he is recognized by Cleopas and his friend. You see, I think right in the text we get a sense of why Cleopas and friend do not recognize Jesus. They have this phrase, I love this phrase, when they're retelling Jesus, who they know as a stranger about the events of Holy Week. And they say, we had hoped, dot, dot, dot. They were just grief-stricken with the death of Jesus. As a pastor, having served from Halifax to Vancouver, I think of everything in between, of sitting with fishermen in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia, as a pastor with them, Canadian Forces soldiers, when I served in Eastern Ontario deploying to Afghanistan. My first church was in Northern Ontario with pulp and paper mill workers. Or a business elite in Vancouver. Very different lifestyles. All of them, when they have honest conversations, talk about disappointments disappointments in themselves, in others, and if they're really honest, in God. It was as if Cleopas and friend were looking at the world with a Good Friday gaze. And now in the breaking of the bread, they are seen through a different lens. It's a doxological lens now. They have Easter eyes. Missiologist David Fitch has a a new book out that I think is terrific called Faithful Presence. And in it, he talks about our role as missionary disciples and the three tables that we need to attend to. The first one is right here. It's what he calls the close table, not closed with a D on it, but close, as in come closer. And here at this table, Jesus is the host. We are the guests, just like Cleopas and friend in Emmaus. And when we are blessed and strengthened through word and sacrament and sent out, we return to our tables in our apartments or our condos or our homes or maybe it's just a little coffee table in a student res room somewhere at U of T. Wherever we call home, now, according to Fitch, we become the host. And we invite guests, Christians, non-Christians, we invite them together, and we are always attending to God's faithful presence in that place and naming it, naming the reality of the father-son spirit activity at work in the world. And then Fitch says there's a third table, not here in this closed circle, not at home in what he calls the dotted circle, but the half circle of out in the neighborhood and the community. The coffee shops, the hockey rinks, wherever you find yourself, and Fitch says the mistaken mission that often is made is we think we go out into the world in that sense as the host with power and authority. Don't sit there, sit there kind of thing. But we go out, he says, as guest, open-handed, eyes wide open to name once more God's faithful presence. Vancouver missiologist Alan Roxborough calls that being a detective of divinity. You look for God's activity and you name it in the world. This is what happens at Emmaus. For Cleopas and friend, they gather with Christ who is revealed to them and their heartbreak turns to heartburn. Where our heart's not burning within us, they say, as we walked on the road with him and they run out to tell others, the great news and the truth of Christ's resurrection. And so too for us, friends, this day as we prepare to leave this shell of worship, we go forward to host in our own homes and to be a guest with good news in the wider community to declare with Easter eyes the truth of the resurrection so that God may be glorified, that Jesus may be recognized that the devil would be terrified, the church energized, and all creation sanctified until the kingdom comes, until the kingdom comes.